1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. In every program, we look at a new book that is especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with Carol Kirsten, Professor of Religious and Islamic Studies at King's College London, about his new book, Cosmopolitans and Heretics, New Muslim Intellectuals and the Study of Islam. Often, when we read about new Muslim intellectuals, we're offered a presentation of their politicized Islamic teachings and radical interpretations of theology, or Western readings that nominally reflect the Islamic tradition. We're rarely introduced to critical Muslim thinkers who neither abandon their Islamic civilizational heritage nor take up in wholesale a Western intellectual per- perspective. Kirsten introduces us to a few modern Muslim thinkers who engage their Islamic intellectual heritage with the philosophical apparatus of contemporary Western thought. Through these modern Muslim intellectuals, he explores how phenomenology and hermeneutics, secularization, and post-colonial vo- vocabulary can assist us in approaching religion more generally. We're left with a wonderful book that introduces us to some of the most important modern Muslim intellectuals and how their thought can help us further analyze religion. Without further ado, here's the interview. Good morning, Carol. How are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm okay. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you making time to, to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Carol's new book explores some of the new Muslim intellectuals from Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Um, but before we get into the book, maybe you could take a moment to just tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Okay. Well, I'm originally from the Netherlands, and the way I got into Islamic studies was a bit of a serendipitous road i think i i originally trained as an arabist back in the 80s in the netherlands i had developed an interest in the middle east already i guess in high school because i i grew up in the, the late 70s and this was the time of the iranian revolution the camp david Accords, the courts these kind of things And I had also had an opportunity to travel with my parents a few times in North Africa and that sort of kindled an interest in who these people were. And then there's maybe also a bit of a a kind of a romantic incentive in in the readings uh, of historical travel accounts on the Middle East and the Arab world in particular. People like Wilfred Thesiger, sort of, yeah made that interest only stronger but it was primarily an interest in first instance in current affairs in the middle east that that made me decide well maybe last minute to to pursue a uh, a degree in, in 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 arabic studies i i thought the f- in first instance that the best road would be either international relations or history or something like that and specialize in the in the middle east eventually but uh, as area studies started to open up in the Netherlands, uh, I, I decided to do it the other way around, and uh, because I was convinced that if you want to engage seriously with a non-Western culture, you better know at least one of the languages of the region, with a with a certain degree of uh, profundity. So I decided to do, go and do uh, Arabic at a university in the east of the country, Nijmegen, which had a reputation of focusing in particular on the contemporary Muslim world. And it is when I ended up there that that I became increasingly more interested in, in Islam as a religious and civilizational uh, tradition. I always make sure to add that uh, as well. And, and eventually I double majored in both Middle Eastern studies and in Islamic studies, writing a dissertation on um, theory and practice of um, Islamic law of treaties. Uh, I did not stay in academia in first instance. I very quickly disappeared uh, in the corporate world and spent more than 10 years working in Saudi Arabia, where I basically had the good fortune of, of working, albeit in a non-academic environment, with what I say, call real Muslims. I was not there with a questionnaire uh, treating them as an object of study. I actually just had a job there and worked with them. and spent 10 years uh, as a human resources manager in, in Riyadh, Duran, and, and, and briefly in, uh, in King Khaled Military City. It's just around 2000 that I started to become a little bit bored with that, but um, I decided then and there that i would take a sabbatical and i uh ended up in thailand i'm married to a thai and we had bought a house there for a number of years before and it was actual by well by coincidence that after doing a sabbatical in southeast asian studies i i got a job teaching asian history at at the same university in spite of not having really a degree in that i had done indonesian as a Minor when I did my Arabic back in the Netherlands, and and I had developed an interest being married to somebody from the region, uh, in, uh, in in the cultures of that area already, and well, this was in 2001, and then 9/11 happened, and although I was very far from the United States, that changed also everything for me because you got people basically asked Excuse me, weren't you trained originally as an Islam assistant? Should you not be doing something with that? So I pondered that a little bit and I thought, well, yeah, I should consider that and not lose this opportunity, provided I can sort of find a combination with my newly found interest in Southeast Asia. Uh, if, I, if I could find a way of combining that with contemporary Islam. And in addition to that, I thought it was also very important to um make sure the other side of the equation would not disappear in that very strong security focus that Islamic studies received from that time onwards and and retained over the last decade or so which from a policy making point of view makes perfect sense cannot deny that there is certain acute security concerns there but Even when they are resolved, Uh, the question I pose to myself is that once this blows over, how are we going to get on with 1.2 million remaining Muslims in the world? So that's when I sort of made up my mind uh, of of exploring what I call alternative Islamic discourses. And reading up on the topic, uh, yeah, I very quickly came up. Against a number of very interesting thinkers in the present-day Muslim world, which eventually I made the subject of a of a PhD product, uh, project. Project uh, I had been teaching by that time for three, four years at the university in in Thailand, which had strong connections with the Presbyterians um, from the United States. And if I have to point out a a mentor, it would be a, a senior colleague I had there who himself was a specialist in Buddhist studies. But uh, he had been at the Institute of World Religions in Harvard. And he said, well, if you want to take an academic career seriously, you, you do need a PhD. So I decided to apply for a place and I was taken by the the famous School of Oriental and African Studies here in London. And that's where I went in 2005. And about halfway through my my thesis research, I got a job offer here at King's College, and and the rest is history, as they as they say.
1: That's great. Um, your your background definitely seems to influence the content of this book. Um, maybe you could. Just introduce us to the figures you're discussing here. Yes. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you came to to write this project. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, as I said, I I wanted to retain, uh, combine basically an interest in contemporary Islamic thinking, but I also uh, considered it important that Indonesia should feature somewhere in my research. I mean, although I was based in Thailand, you shouldn't forget that Indonesia is the largest Muslim nation state in the world. A lot of people tend to forget that that one in five Muslims on the planet lives in that country. And there's this general perception and and conflation even of Islam only with the Middle East. And well, you cannot deny historically, of course, that that's where it comes from. And Arabic is still a sort of you know the key liturgical and, and and scholarly language of the Islamic tradition. But you know there is many more Muslims. Uh, East of Hormuz than, say, in the Middle East. Uh, so I, I found it very important to a sort of, you know, uh, showcase Indonesia. And that's why I decided to select as one of uh, my my objects of research uh, Indonesian public intellectual and, and Islamist Nukholis Majid, who unfortunately died like a month before I, uh, I set off to London to do my Ph.D., and uh, two other thinkers I was interested in was an e- Egyptian philosopher, Hassan Hanafi, who um, did his own doctoral studies in France at the Sorbonne um, during a very interesting period of time in the 50s and 60s when that was a sort of, you know, the epicenter of of everything new and postmodern you could think of. Uh, he studied with a other people, uh, Paul Ricoeur, the the well-known existentialist uh, philosopher and a modernist Catholic theologian, Jean Guitton. So that made already for an interesting mix. Plus Hassan Hanafi in his youth had uh, a a brief flotation with the Muslim brotherhood. So he has a very interesting background in that respect and, and also his own scholarly projects uh, about which I will talk in, in a minute a little bit more. I think, is 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 one of the, the the most interesting attempts of of finding some kind of a synthesis between Western and 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 Islamic thinking. And the third one I decided to add was Mohammed Arkoun, Algerian-born, ethnic Berber, but a man who spent his entire academic career also in France, um, teaching in Strasbourg and later uh, in Paris at the Sorbonne. Uh, so, I had this trio I was interested in, and as I started exploring this thought it you know the, the actual focus uh, of my project um, yeah became a bit clearer to me i i, I found a way of articulating that uh, to a, to to a greater de- degree. I had these three I had an Indonesian it had to be something contemporary. Uh, As I progressed and also read a sort of around the field, uh, I was looking for an angle in their thought that has not yet been addressed so much in in scholarship. And I discovered that although they were recognized as public intellectuals and they had spoken out on current issues in in their part of the world or uh, uh, things affecting Muslims and Islam on a global scale, what had been less well addressed is actually that these people are scholars of religion. They are competent academics as well. And I said, why not explore that part of their work? And this got me also interested very much in, in how our field, the study of Islam, uh, fits within, say, the broader field of uh, the study of religion as a, you know, that, that generic phenomenon of the religious that is addressed, you know, across the board in, in all kinds of traditions. And I became sort of aware that, um, I call it awkward relations that exist between the study of Islam uh, in its, say, all, shall, shall we call it, the old-fashioned orientalist approach, which is you know, heavily philological and, and historical in orientation, and dealing with classical texts and what have you. Uh, then next you get the area studies approach, which is often very much uh, driven uh, by a political science and, and maybe to a lesser extent also an ethnographic uh, approach. And then finally, and that is probably the most difficult relationship, how does that that, that subfield of Islamic studies fit in within the generic f- field of religious studies? And there was sort of a, a strange relationship between the two, I think. Um, study of religion specialists not dealing, say, with one of the major traditions, of the world religions, as they like to call them, held Islamicists sort of in, in awe of the, you know, the linguistic aptitudes that that field required. And on the other hand, Islamicists were, well, tended to be a bit dismissive of the study of religions in the sense that they either dealt with archaic traditions or, or little tribal religions, uh, you know, n- not the major Fields. Although I must admit that probably Indologists, people dealing with with Hinduism and Buddhism, have a greater openness, or tend to have a greater openness to the study of of religion as a generic field. So I became very interested how you know if you try to bring in that angle, could we learn something for people like Kuhn and Hanafi and Majid in 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 redefining that relationship because. Uh, it's, it's, was a bit this this difficult minage à trois between area studies and Oriental studies and study of religion and and I sort of had the suspicion that if say Islamists would become a a bit more promiscuous sleep around more so to speak with other with other fields um, that that could Im- improve things we, we might actually be able to learn something other from uh, specialists in other fields and it's that direction i i tried to push further in in my research which became then a phd and and was then sort of adapted for the book i sort of provocatively have entitled cosmopolitans and heretics
1: yeah i think you do a good job and i like that image you're using um one of the things i found about your book is is really is theoretically rich and i i'm wondering if you could talk about that one of the I, I think inspirational figures for your uh, approach is uh, Russell McCutcheon, and I was wondering if you could discuss uh, h- how you use uh, McCutcheon's approach or taxonomies to to approach these three figures.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks for bringing that one up because I sort of need a little bit of setup there to 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 launch into that one. It that is one of these serendipitous discoveries you make, I. I, I read his book on, you know, uh, the, the, the discipline of religion, and, and I knew also he had written something called The Manufacturing Religion, in first instance with, with a fair degree of reserve and suspicion. Um, but then, indeed, when I looked at, at his taxonomy, even if you sort of don't take it to its, which I think McCutcheon does to an extent, maybe it's, it's very cynical, uh, limits in the sense that, you know, the study of religion or is, is nothing more than yet another social or discursive formation. Uh, I think always when you, when you look at scholars and when you work in the field of intellectual history, as, as I do, um, you owe your objects, the, the, the people, the thinkers, the texts you study, the courtesy of at least having the assumption that, that they have something substantive to say. Uh, so in, that's the kind of reservation I have to how, how McCutcheon pushes it very much almost into a nihilist approach. But what I do appreciate is, is indeed uh, sort of the stickers, the the tags he has put on different types of religious scholars. And I thought uh, that th- the three types he comes up with is sort of fitted with the three people i was looking at in first instance he, he says you know study of religion it's it starts of sort of with theological approaches uh which is well often maybe apologetic or at least it tries to make sense of, of this or that specific religious tradition um, so if you then had to look for among the trio i was working on For a theologian, I I thought you could apply that that characterization to the Indonesian, Nuhalus Majid. Next McCutcheon says you have people who try to create a bit more, say, distance. Uh, And that is an approach that has sort of emerged, well, within the Christian tradition, or in the West at least, in the early 19th century, with figures like Schleiermacher, and it was later then developed further, Uh, by people like Max Müller and and von der Leo and uh, the phenomenologists uh, sort of the more liberal thinkers uh, of the field and I think Hassan Hanafi could sort of be inserted into that category and then finally you get the people who really want to be you know scholarly rigorous and create critical distance and well that's the one which mccutcheon holds up as you know that's what religious studies should be all about Uh, their task is to be critics not caretakers and have a sort of a you know he makes a parallel with ethnography where basically the scholar of religion is an ethnographer or an anthropologist who uh not just takes the adherence of a religious tradition as his informants but if he's interested in say the methodology and the theory of the study of religion even theologians would become like the informants of an ethnographer. And, and I realize that takes off probably a lot of theologians, but there is something to be said for that, that if indeed you want to look at that, that third angle to the study of religions, that is, that is not a bad parallel to draw. And I think Mohammed Akuna sort of fits the bill there.
1: Yeah, I think it's great. I, I really appreciate that approach. I think it adds a lot of depth to your conversation. Um, Two of of the big things that I think are relevant to each thinker you discuss um, is this idea of a civilizational heritage and the the use or influence of Western thought. Could you discuss the relationship between Western thought and this Islamic civilizational heritage?
0: Yeah, I think uh – all three, in spite of the fact that I call one a theologian in quotation marks, the other one a phenomenologist, and the third one a sort of a, a critic and not a caretaker, in spite of their vastly different outlooks on their own religious tradition and the methodological and theoretical apparatus they eventually adopted as, as, as academic students of religion and of Islam, um, what they share is indeed um they're all double critics as i call them they are critical of both their own tradition but as well of the western tradition especially sort of the hegemonic attitudes you find in um well western learning not only in the field of religion and yet at the same time they're sort of you know uh mature enough or or not They don't have these ideological blinkers that they want to have a sort of a a purely Islamic approach, um, uh, completely self-sufficient, and that, you know, Muslims should pull themselves up by their bootstraps and and ignore what goes on outside of the tradition. Far from it. I think their attitude is, indeed, that whilst being critical of certain Western approaches, um there are certain things to be learned and maybe applied within the muslim context and that's where also their view of their own religious tradition comes in in the sense that uh, i've dropped the word civilization before um their interest is not limited to say what what a lot of outsiders probably think what what what, uh, you know religious study specialists deal with and and maybe when you talk about theologians that is true to a certain degree that we only deal with doctrinal or theological questions of theodicies and why is there evil in the world and the metaphysics of of, of a transcendent being it usually goes beyond that and within the muslim world that that has been translated and you know uh, Taking is a, a comprehensive view of of Islam and it and its heritage and and they use that Arabic word turath heritage thinking for that, and I think Majid Hanafi and Arkun, all three look at the Islamic tradition in these terms, in spite of taking very different approaches in 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 in, in how they think that should be analyzed.
1: I what you do from your your study is you really try to develop a way in how we can approach Islam in the future. And I, I think this is very helpful. Um, could you discuss how you see your study uh, refashioning, as you say, the study of Islam?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at, indeed, as I said, I mean, in spite of being double critics and, 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 and all three looking at uh islam as as you know a vast civilizational heritage hassan hanafi even calls it a treasure house a ghazana of 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 learning and that includes the usual fields of you know dealing with tafsir quranic commentary studying the traditions of the prophets law theology philosophy but also literature and historiography and what you see is that all three have pursued a different trajectory. I think in the case of Nuhalus Majid, in particular in his very early years, when he was a student leader, so he was an activist alongside uh, becoming a scholar of religion, he was very much charmed and interested in in the way that the secularization thesis was being developed in the 60s by people like Robert Bella and Peter Berger, and, and from the theological angle by Harvey Cox. And, and you know, in his early writings, he cites these people uh, extensively and also tries to get across to, uh, in first instance, his home audience of modernist Muslims and, and Muslim activists in Indonesia, that secularization is not the same as secularism. Mm. To a degree that fell on deaf ears, there was a, uh, and that was not stupidity on the part of his detractors, but probably more uh, a worry that if they would indeed acknowledge that secularization is a process that is affecting say every modern society and they they have to come to terms with it in one way or another and that is something entirely different than secularism which like any other ism is an ideology which is not something you necessarily have to adopt Um, a, a lot of his detractors didn't felt very uncomfortable with that distinction, and they tried to dismiss it as sophistry. But some of them, I think, were smart enough to, to see that if they would allow that kind of an analytical approach in, um, that might have an impact on, on their own uh, ideological underpinnings. And um, there is a general perception in the existing literature of Nicholas Majid that he was particularly in- influenced and drawing on Robert Bella and harvey cox but i argue in the book that you should look more at peter Berger. although he cites him less frequently if you look at the the oeuvre the writings of peter Berger, uh, most people only know him as a sociologist of religion very few people are aware that he has actually also written books that are well more on the theological side of the spectrum books like um uh, a rumor of angels and um, uh, things like that. But in particular, the heretical imperative, which is also why I bought that, brought that word of, of heretics into the title of, of, of my book. Uh, there is these two sides also to Noholis Majid, where a sociological understanding is combined with a more engaged theological understanding. And that's why he fits also in that McCutcheon category in, in my view. Hassan Hanafi... Is very much a phenomenologist. Not only the religious phenomenology as developed by uh, people like van der Leo and later uh, uh, Eliade and, and 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 the usual suspects, um, but also philosophical phenomenology, starting with Husserl and 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 then later sort of presented in a more uh, existentialist fashion by his mentor Paul Ricoeur. Uh, and and I think I I have shown as I look at you know the method the philosophical method which Hassan Hanafi as an academic philosopher tries to develop to to engage with the Islamic tradition is very much tied in with 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 Husserl's philosophy and to a lesser extent with 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 Heidegger and and Gadamer. But but I think I mean if the parallels are sometimes really remarkable. And, and his whole methodology, which later became much more politicized, the, the 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 Heritage and Renewal Project. If you look back in time, you look at his um, thesis work at the Sorbonne, and a lot of people uh, in the Arabic-speaking world were not proficient enough in French to engage with these hefty tomes, and they they have only engaged with the uh, the, the, the Arabic uh, volumes many, many volumes that have appeared as part of the Heritage and Renewal Project. But actually, he defined that approach, that whole agenda already uh, in the 60s when he did a PhD with Ricoeur at the Sorbonne. So there is, on, on the one hand, a very strong influence of Western philosophical thinking. And yet, Hanafi thinks that he can apply that to the development of a, a self-sufficient Islamic method of 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 philosophical examination. Um, I mean, he was not hindered by any sense of, of of modesty. He saw himself as a sort of taking up the project of uh, Muhammad Iqbal and and come up with a reconstruction of religious thinking in the Islamic tradition. By, you know, uh, Iqbal had a sort of hinted at in his lecture series of the 1930s. Hanafi really picks that up and develops it into a uh, a coherent, comprehensive philosophical methodology, which unfortunately became so vast that it is simply too big a job for one individual. And um, Hanafi started to get that uncomfortable feeling that it was probably beyond the reach of, of one scholar in the late 80s, early 90s, when as he became, you know, progressed in age that he says, I'm never going to finish this on my own. It will be, you know, incomplete. Because, yeah, I think he did bite off a chunk that was too big to swallow for for one lone philosopher. But he sort of was a bit monopolistic in his approach. And, and I also don't think at present you can really point at a Hanafi school of, 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 of thinking. He has had a tremendous influence and his ideas have been carried far beyond the arabic-speaking part of the muslim he has a huge audience also in indonesia and some of his books have been translated but it's it's something that probably can only be developed on a in 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 a collaborative framework which is difficult if you want to come up with a coherent philosophical system um, and that's where Arkun comes in he is probably much more of a uh, a pragmatic figure, and from the beginning, he has been rather eclectic, but but not inconsistent, in my view. In in his borrowings, he was in first instance, uh, very much a historian influenced through Claude Cahen by the the, the famous and notorious Annales school of history writing, which developed in in France, uh, just before the Second World War. In first instance, in Strasbourg. And which was then carried to Paris by its founders, Bloch and Febvre, and then adopted by the giant of the second generation, Fernand Baudel, who spent some time across the Atlantic in Brazil and, and, and later the war years in New York. Um, and that approach divides Human history in, 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 well, three time frames: a long durée, the long range. Where you see that geographical and and, and and large geohistorical formations, a sort of color, the historical direction of civilizations. Then you get what he calls the conjuncture, the, the, the conjunctural developments in history, that is sort of the mid-range. And events, what usually you know, is a sort of the, the bread and butter of historians, and especially in the old-fashioned field, as I say, you know, historians write about kings and battles. But in the Annales school, the kings and the battles matter less than the other factors. That's why they moved also very much and histories of everyday life and of, you know, small people. Uh, they, they brought a sort of an anthropological component into history writing. Arkun was very much charmed by that. In particular, I think, because it allowed a sort of, uh, if you do, heritage thinking he thought it was very important not only to look at the written traditions in religions but also the oral legacy and from somebody with a berber background who grew up in an oral culture in the kabili mountains of algeria that is not so strange to have that kind of a sensitivity so you see him move from a historical towards an anthropological approach and spending his entire career of the 50s and 60s 70s in Paris he started to sort of add or borrow elements from well everything else that emerged from France in those times Postmodernism, modernism post-structuralism uh, what, what have you Derrida, Foucault, castoriadis all these names you see occur in uh, in Arcun's books Ricoeur also, mind you, because like Hanafi he spent some time studying with Ricoeur as well but uh, it resulted in a much more mixed bag. And Arkun, although he did some really interesting work on what he called Arab-Islamic humanism in the time of the Buyid uh, viziers in, in Baghdad, that, that was a sort of his hands-on historical work that put him on the map, he very quickly moved to what I call agenda setting. He came up with new research agendas Islamists should engage in. Uh, uh well preferably during his lifetime but a lot of him um, of that work is is still outstanding so it, it's very much something to be done in the future and he presented that in first instance under the title applied islamology now that does not mean a sort of applied in the sense of um that it must have some kind of, of you know, a relevance to policy or poverty relief or that, that applied means borrowing a diverse theoretical methodological apparatus to new ways of academic research into the Islamic uh, tradition, and that goes from say using semiotics in analyzing the Quran you know, the thick description of Clifford Geertz in, in dealing with small Muslim communities and, and everything in between. And it is Zarkun who realizes that, you know, that's a big job. And he says, and ideally that is executed by teams of researchers, not only from various disciplines, but also by people of both Muslim and non-Muslim backgrounds. So it's diametrically opposed to a sort of the 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 soloist approach of Hassan Hanafi. And and in the final 10 years of his life, Arkuni even became more expansivist in the sense that it should not only be a critique of what he called Islamic reason, Islamic thinking, but it should extend to all ways of thinking, religious, rationalist in quotation marks, the sort of technological thinking that tends to, uh, uh, dominates in 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 our time and age and the ultra critical postmodernist, postcolonial, post-colonial post-structural all the posts we we like to embrace uh presently um that that tries to take a sort of a helicopter view of all these of ways of how humans think about who they are and what their heritage is
1: let's get into uh the details of some of these figures um a large portion of uh, Majid's life was spelt, spent in Chicago and could could you discuss his time in Chicago and how that influenced his thinking?
0: Yeah, I mean as I said he, his 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 early work was very much influenced by the sociology of religion uh, in uh, when when he was a student leader in the 60s. Um because of his high public profile, um Majid was well not only influential in the student movement and in say um, uh, Islamic politics in Indonesia. He also appeared on the radar of uh, two scholars in the United States, Leonard Binder and uh, Fazlur Rahman, the, the Pakistani-born um, uh, Islamist, both working in the University of Chicago, where they had started a a massive. I th- and I'm not, I think it was founded by the Ford Foundation. The project, the, the, the funding was coming from there, and it's called Islam and Social Change. And the objective was to sort of uh, take a survey of what's going on in the Muslim world. And it it not only involved Binder and Fazlur Rahman themselves as scholars. I mean, two seminal works by by these two scholars are the product of their engagement in the project. It's Fazlur Rahman's Islam and Modernity, which is sort of biblical status almost within Islamic studies in the 80s, as well as Binder's Islamic liberalism were, were there sort of, you know, scholarly output of the project. But the other component was that they would invite scholars from across the Muslim world, promising young uh, Muslim intellectuals to come and spend time in Chicago. And Nukhul majid was one of the guys earmarked for that. And he spent some time in the mid-70s engaging in this particular project, attending seminars and what have you. But then he decided uh, a few years later, when he was approaching middle age, uh, a bit like me, with his PhD later in life, uh, he went to pursue a PhD. Un- in first instance, he thought he would do something in the field of political sciences. He started out with Leonard Binder, but then switched, changed his mind, switched to go and work with Fazlur Rahman. And here you have this guy from the 60s who was then considered as a sort of a, um, well, renegade innovator, even in the eyes of, you know, what Fazbar Rahman calls the classical modernists, the people who, uh, you know, buy into the Muslim Brotherhood legacy, that Islam is the solution and we shall have an Islamic state and all shall be well. Uh, This man is sort of in the attempt to take this comprehensive uh, civilizational approach to uh, Islamic studies and, and 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 engaging with with the, the the Islamic tradition becomes a bit the devil's advocate because he dies he decides to do a PhD on Ibn Taymiyyah, the, the sort of uh, yeah notorious thinker of the 13th 14th century who is by all kinds of Islamist movements rightly or wrongly held up as as part of their silsila, of their intellectual uh, genealogy um and, and he engages with ibn Taymiyyah's thought not with a sort of his legal thinking because Ibn Taymiyyah is his notoriety right. is particularly based on all kinds of um often very intolerant fatwas he proclaimed against all kinds of people he disagreed with uh but he was a competent theological and philosophical thinker and that's the dimension uh majid tries to sort of showcase in his research he looked at the writings of ibn Taymiyyah and 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 i have the impression that even among islamists that is a sort of under amplified that dimension of of ibn Taymiyyah. and i'm by no means a fan of ibn Taymiyyah, but he has sometimes been underrated i think in terms of intellectual prowess but he has Taken up the challenge at that time, seven hundred years ago, uh, b- basically extending that that debate that started already when Al Ghazali took on Ibn Sina, and you get the sort of the retaliation later on of Ibn Rushd against sort of Ashari theological thinking that Ibn Taymiyyah takes on all three, the earliest sort of mystical. Uh, thinking of Ibn Sina, the, the mainstream Ash'ari traditionalist uh, and comprehensive approach of Razali, and then the rationalist backlash by Ibn Rush to show that all three basically uh, are found wanting. And, and Ibn Taymiyyah uses that basically to, to go back to his Sola Scriptura, and only the Quran and, and the Sunnah. Are sufficient to have a structured, proper Islamic um, heritage and in, in its purest form. Now, whatever you think about that ideological point of view, to be able to take on these three giants of earlier centuries, you must be very well conversant with their ideas. And as Majid examined that, and, and I, thought, I think he wrote a really accessible. Lucid and profound PhD thesis, and I, I still find it a pity that the thing has never been published.
1: Carol, can you uh, describe what happens when he returns to Nisha after being uh, in Chicago?
0: Well, yeah, I mean his by. He was a sort of this firebrand student leader and, and regarded with a fair degree of suspicion in, in, in the years after that, especially as he had ticked off all kinds of uh, Muslim political activists by, by launching uh, the, the, a notorious slogan that, yes, Islam, yes, but Islamic parties, no. Uh, he spent some time in the wilderness, and, and I think Chicago was a sort of a welcome intermezzo. But when he returns in 84, 85 in Indonesia... His his scholarly credentials with a PhD from Chicago, you know, summa cum laude, I believe, even, uh, you know, n- nobody could dispute anymore his in his intellectual credentials. And also, Indonesia enters a critical time frame. We we're in very quickly in the last decade of the the New Order regime, which you know was already controlled for for twenty years by General Suharto, and and that is unraveling at the seams and you see that people's islamic identity is becoming more and more important it even makes inroads into the political elites and i think it's neholis Majid's. Uh, to his credit he makes being muslim uh without o- politicizing this overly he makes that palatable to Indonesia, which has this very diverse religious perspective I mean it's a majority Muslim country, but Muslims come in all shades shapes and forms uh but there is you know substantial people of Chinese heritage there are the Hindus of Bali there's very substantial Christian communities uh Majid was very apt in negotiating and and navigating these various strands and and he founded a think tank called the Paramadina Foundation um which started to cater to, yeah, I call it also the spiritual needs of of what is becoming, Indonesia is getting more and more prosperous. It has It's an oil country, so it has uh, benefited from the oil boom. Uh, by the 80s, 90s, there is a substantial urban middle class of well-educated Muslims who have the condominium and the car. And now what? They have this spiritual void and they... You know, these are educated people. They want to engage in an intellectual fashion with Turath, with the Islamic heritage. The Paramadina Foundation catered to that and was also able to reach beyond the middle classes into the elites. And from '85 until his death in 2005, Majid was the public Muslim intellectual in Indonesia. Uh, uh, he was fiercely independent in the sense that he never joined any of the Islamic political parties. He was never even associated with either the modernist or traditional mass organizations. You find in, in Indonesia a unique feature within the Muslim world. I mean, you have the, the traditionalist Nagdatul ulama and the modernist Muhammadiyah movements, who both command between 30 and 40 million uh, I will not say members, but people who identify with these movements. I mean, that dwarfs the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. He was never a member of any of these movements. He was fiercely independent, but but nevertheless, very influential. And he played a key role in 1998 because of his, his standing as an intellectual in convincing, in in two crucial personal meetings with the aging president Suharto, to step down, relinquish power, and and avoid, you know, bloodshed. There was there was a bloodless transition of power in Indonesia. Although in the aftermath, we see a polarization of uh, the political field, including uh, uh, the the Muslim component of that, where things got sometimes very nasty. But he at least avoided that. Uh, you know, bloodshed where a military basically stepped out of the way and permitted, with a bit of a delay factor, for a democratization process to take shape, although in an increasingly uh, antagonistic atmosphere among Muslims. And, yeah, what I find a bit of a tragedy in uh, at the end of uh, Majid's life, when he is terminally ill, um, the rather conservative council of olama, of, of religious scholars in Indonesia, found it necessary to proclaim a sort of a fatwa against the viewpoints of Majid, where, you know, for a setting like you find in Indonesia, pluralism, liberalism, and a degree of secularity are, are key components for a society to be able to cope with that kind of diversity was condemned by, by them as, as un-Islamic. Luckily, probably Majid didn't have to uh, uh, consciously ex- experience that, uh, that final episode.
1: Let's move to uh, Hassan Hanafi. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could discuss his heritage and renewal project.
0: Yes, the Heritage and Renewal Project, as I said, it's very comprehensive. It's grounded in his decision in the 50s and 60s when he was doing a PhD to come up with a comprehensive analysis of uh, where Muslims stood uh, in history and in the present-day world. And it was conceived, indeed, as what I said, not just a double critique. The first part was a sort of a critical examination of uh, the Muslim heritage and w- where things had gone wrong, how it had run out of steam at a certain point, and and how you could jumpstart again a sort of a uh, a rationalist tradition, you know, where where the things that had been explored by well up to the time of Ibn Rushd, uh, how that has sort of disappeared from the radar. Uh, added to that he says you 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 can say well that 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 heritage is there and it's sort of he almost says the heritage was hijacked by the west because uh where the muslim world sort of disavowed and rejected the heritage of ibn Rushd, the west was very happy to adopt it and you know without ibn Rushd and his famous uh, commentaries on Aristotle and the very fact that he got a Latinized name Averroes, uh, you would never have had the highest scholasticism of, of say Aquinas and people like that. And as a result, on a few reasons, you wouldn't have had a Renaissance and a reformation and an enlightenment and, and eventually the Western world as we have it, including it's sort of, you know, imperialist project uh, where it starts colonizing the whole world without sort of the input of medieval Muslim Spain, that wouldn't have existed. That brings him also automatically to the other side of the equation where he looks at, okay, what is our relationship as Muslims with this Western heritage? Is it superior to ours? Should we feel inferior? And then finally, if you have engaged in that analysis of these two, you know, your own heritage and your attitude towards, as he calls it, and the western heritage what kind of an agenda should you then project for the muslim future and and that's where hanafi becomes uh, ideological it's also the least well-developed part of his um, of his whole project the, the the segment that deals with the muslim world has been uh, elaborated to a much greater level of detail although Again, there, I think, the very fact that he all tried to do all this on his own, once he had done the blueprint, which I think is remarkably consistent and impressive and, and seems to cover all the bases you would need to cover to come up with a with a civilizational critique of the magnitude he envisaged, after that, you basically need all the help you can get and Hanafi didn't do that. He started writing all these books on his own. And Unfortunately, you know, volume uh, became uh, sort of had an impact, a negative impact on the profundity. It it becomes a bit encyclopedic in its elaborations. And he actually never got properly around to writing about the Muslim attitude towards um, Western civilization. And and the agenda for the future has remained... uh, the least articulate the only thing he ever published was in the 80s a a kind of a manifesto type of thing called leftist islam or the islamic left which saw the muslim world taking the lead in in a, a kind of a liberation movement along the lines of you know christian liberation theology not affecting only the muslim world but providing even a guiding light to, to the whole third or, or the whole developing
1: world. Let's, uh, we have a little bit more time. Let's move to Arkun. Um, maybe you could describe the method of applied Islamology and how that relates to the Emerging Reason Project.
0: Right. Well, applied Islamology, as I said, it's a sort of a mixed bag of approaches uh, borrowing from. Uh, the analysis school of the historians bringing in post structuralist methods of deconstructing discourses. Uh, uh, in, in the case of the Muslim world, uh, Arkun called that, that you know, there is, there is a sort of a, a hegemonic discourse that tends to prevail. And, and in Arkun's view, that was, of course, the sort of the Ash'ari theological school uh, propounded by Ghazali at the expense of, say, more innovative or call it even adventurous ways of, of, of looking at a religious and, and a civilizational heritage. And the areas that is sort of are uh, considered no-go areas, from a, a doctrinal or dogmatic point of view, equals the unthought. And eventually the unthought becomes the unthinkable. You're not allowed to pose these what-if questions. It's very much the Bileh cave, don't ask how, approach of, of the Asharite school that, that still carries a lot of weight in the Muslim world. Arkun's applied Islamology wants to quarry these unthought and unthinkable areas of the Islamic heritage, which is sort of, you know, were there. But that's the people you tend to call heretics. You know, that's beyond the pale. And Akun says, well, as long as you disregard it, you don't have a full view of the Islamic tradition. And and once you have done that, probably that also exercises uh, the, 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 uh, uh, such an influence that people become aware that all civilizations have these blind spots. Within Western thinking, we maybe overrate our present, what he calls, teletechnico scientific thinking, which is, applied in, in maybe in the worst possible sense. If you can't make money with it, it's useless. It's not entertained or considered worthwhile engaging in. It's that kind of stuff, this whole post-tradition, whether you call it post-modernist or post-colonial or post-structuralist, agitates against. And, and it's something Arkun thinks considers very necessary, that posing these awkward, uncomfortable questions and... Uh, yeah, there's always the danger that they move into the, the nihilistic uh, dimension. But uh, th- that's why I think Arkun is more charmed by a person like Derrida than Foucault. Within Derrida, although he, he pushes thinking also sometimes to the limit, and and, and and it sometimes looks more like language games à la Wittgenstein, uh, Derrida is less of a nihilist than Foucault, for example, who reduces everything to pure power games. With Derrida, there is a genuine interest in, um, indeed, the, the power of language, but also how you could articulate alternative discourses that do retain um, a not only a substantive element, but also salvage... And that's probably something the three people share again, and and maybe to the largest extent. These people, by looking say very much as the Islamic heritage as a human product, rather than being concerned too much with the transcendent, they're real humanists in in the good sense of the word, I think. And there is glimpses of that in in even in Derrida, especially in his final years when. Uh, 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 you know, he became more and more interested in his own. Derrida was an Algerian Jew. A lot of people are either not aware of that or don't pay very much attention to it. But Derrida became more and more preoccupied as he, I think, especially when he started to realize that he was mortally ill with his um, heritage as a Jew from the Muslim world. And there's, there's an interesting book about it called Islam and the Conversation with. Jacques Derrida, in his final months, where he even starts, and of course he cannot resist uh, puns and word games, where he taps into what he calls his nostalgia, his sort of nostalgia for his Algerian past.
1: Well, Carol, there's a lot more we could talk about, but we've occupied plenty of your time. That's all right. Before you go, maybe you could tell us what you're working on now.
0: Yeah, well, I still haven't given up on my interest in these what I, what I call alternative Islamic discourses, and, and I want to continue uh, mapping these discourses, as I call them. Um, what I think is that uh, in this new cartography of the Muslim world, if, if you look at its contemporary intellectual history, uh, I'm presently focusing on one of the what I think are the four cardinal points in in on that new map, aside from uh, Turkey, the Maghreb, northwestern Africa, Iran, Indonesia. Of course, uh, remains my my hobby horse. I'm I'm now working on a on a project that basically well picks up where my book leaves off. I I sort of end with the heirs of the trio I talk about in Cosmopolitans and Heretics, uh, the the generation of Muslim intellectuals that has sort of come up in the last 10, 12 years when Indonesia has set its first hesitant steps towards democracy. So I'm going to write a book on Islam uh, in contemporary Indonesia and look very much what the fate has been of these three controversial concepts that Majid introduced, and the younger generation of liberal and, and progressive thinkers wants to salvage. Uh, that's why the subtitle of the book is um, Secularism, Pluralism, and Liberalism.
1: Sounds great. Well, I thank you, Carol, for uh, joining us. I look forward to your future research. So that was my interview with Carol Kirsten, Professor of Religious Studies at King's College London. About his new book Cosmopolitans and Heretics New Muslim Intellectuals and the Study of Islam published by Columbia University Press in 2011. Thanks again.